what is going on? You are listening to Jed Banger's Ball. Uh, how's it going out there? Uh, let's see. God damn it. I keep saying, uh, all the time. Uh, Master Pete. Uh, and then Fonzie always, here he goes. I don't know if you're gonna, I don't know if you can hear it. No, you probably can't hear it. He decides that he's gonna eat dinner every time I, uh, decide to intro the podcast. Yeah. There you go. Then he goes for the metal bowl with his, like, fucking punk collar on that he that he wears and then he bangs his punk his like sid vicious dog collar into the uh bowl ah what's going on um sorry this episode's a little bit late it's been a hell of a week here trying to get ready for this tour i'm probably not gonna have another i'm probably not gonna have an episode come out while we're on tour i'm trying to see if i can get somebody in time but we're leaving Thursday, this Thursday. You're probably listening to this. This is the 17th. We're leaving on the 19th. Uh, the 19th, we're playing in Tucson. I'll give you the dates here. The 19th is Tucson uh, at the Owls Club. Uh, then it's the 21st in Houston at the White Oak Music Hall. That's with Zeke, The Spits, Weed Eater, L7. Uh, 722 New Orleans at Santos. That's with Unsane. Unsane's also playing in Houston as well. 724 is Austin at Beerland, 725, uh, that means July 25th, or in uh, Europe, 25-7. We're at, in San Antonio at Paper Tiger, that's with OBN 3s, our buddy Orville's band. 726, we're back at the Monarch in El Paso, uh, run by Leo, and uh, we're playing with, um, who the fuck are these guys? Diz Brew from Juarez, Mexico, uh, that uh, my friend Jesse said she saw them in LA a couple weeks ago and said they were rad. And then I reached out to them on Instagram and they were able to get on the show. And then, uh, after that, it's, uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, uh, 727 at the fire Creek coffee company, um, uh, which I'm excited to check out. I've never been to Flagstaff. Then we go back to Mexicali at, uh, Taberna LeBaron. I'm saying that wrong. Uh, we had a super fun time down there. The last time we played there, I was in a fucking grumpy mood because we drew drove from tijuana it was a sunday it was a kind of a last minute booking it was super fucking hot uh i think we went on it mm, two in the morning or something way past my old man time so i was grumpy but i felt and i felt bad about that show because we probably played for about half an hour and, and we probably should have played more like 45 or more minutes, you know, uh, you know, Europe, you play like an hour and a half and they, and then they want encores and, and, and Mexico is the same, even, even though it's late and it's a Sunday night, people want to have a good fucking time. And I should appreciate that. It shouldn't make me grumpy, but it makes me grumpy because I'm been driving all day and I'm old and it's hot. Uh, and then we get back August 8th, we're at Zebulon and that's with, uh, Blackwater, Holy Light and Death Chant, uh, who I saw last night and we were supposed to play Sunday. I'm not going to get into it. I went down last night, uh, to the Monty and I saw Death Chant and I saw Sacramonti at the Monty and I saw Pushy from Portland, Oregon, who, we did a split seven inch with them it was like a quad split, I guess you call it like a four way thing, four way split. And that came out on who can you trust records out of Ber uh, Berlin, out of uh, downtown Germany. And 
these guys fucking shred. It sounded like early AC, uh, early ACDC. It sounded like early ZZ Top. And they're not hipsters. They're just like big old boys wearing shorts. Uh, so, you know, and they were, and of course, I saw some people that I know from Portland that know them. And then it went like all this shit clicked from back in the day when I would see like this band Party Time. And some of those guys went into being Red Fang. And then that reminded me of the Missoula, Montana days and like Fireballs of Freedom and then Wenatchee, Washington. There was a band called Lopez and like all this kind of like old man stuff started rushing. I keep saying old man. I'm not that fucking old. Uh, All this like sort of early, late 90s, early 2000s, like drugs and alcohol zooming into my brain and like sort of unlocked some memories there. So they're fucking great. Uh, they were supposed to play at my, stay at my house last night, um, but they found a place to stay somewhere else. Thank God, because I'm just fucking tired. Uh, but yeah, we're leaving on Thursday, and uh, today's—I didn't even get to the fucking the guest today. Today's guest is Kashi Khalidi, who um, I met him through Jessica, my um, someone. People call say partner, I say girlfriend. Uh, I met Kashi through Jessica, and he used to have a magazine called Mean Magazine that she used to write for. But um, but beyond that, he worked for Grand Royal Records, the the Beastie Boys label. Um, he worked for Capitol Records. He uh, did a bunch of other crazy shit that we're going to get into in the interview. But most importantly, now he owns a winery in Napa that Jess and I went up to with our friend Jonathan Rice, who's on an episode of Jedbanger's Ball that you can go back and hear. I think it's like, fuck, what episode is that shit? Um, I'm typing. Do I need to type it? Nah, fuck it. I don't know. Go look it up. It's on uh, iTunes or whatever, whatever episode that is. But we went there with Jonathan Rice. He was performing um, some of his haikus from his new book. Farewell, my dudes. Uh, that was on Hatton Press, Hatton Press, Hatton Beard Press, Jess's book publishing company. So we went all went up there uh, together for this event at, at at Kashi Khalidi's winery called Ashes and Diamonds, and uh, we just had the most amazing fucking time. And then Jess was like, "You should interview Kashi," and then and and then it came came to pass. And I went there last week, and I did it. And I did it over in at um, down on Wilshire Boulevard in sort of like central L.A. or whatever, where we used to do the podcast originally, because Kashi has an office right around there. And so I met him there. We got to see all the people from down there uh, that we that we used to do the podcast with. And so um, it was kind of a trip down memory memory lane. And for me, who uh, for me, uh, who has been really getting into white wine over the last probably two years as opposed to uh, shitty beer that makes my stomach sick. And, uh, you know, it it was great to talk to him about wine and food and how they relate and the environment and, and, you know, but, 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 but beyond me just explaining that now, I don't know why I'm so jacked up. I think I'm trying to get this done because I want to watch the all-star game, but I'm making it longer in a weird way. Anyways, Let's talk to Kashi Khalidi about his winery, Ashes and Diamonds, and, and, and all the other interesting things in this man's life. Okay. 
I didn't want to talk to, talking to that mic though about I what what because what you're saying is is is, you're I, talking is about I agree with it. hiring young people and then actually trusting them to make decisions and working in a democratic egalitarian sort of environment. Yes, there's a reason why sub pop works like that and it's worked successfully. And I am my, myself. I believe the I have one guy who's who's shuffling out, but he's sort of the CFO, if you will, and he's he's in his fifties. But beyond that, I think the oldest person we have is thirty two, thirty three. This is at the winery. Yeah, the winery. Right. And so, you know, and every, the median age I think is like twenty five, twenty six. Right. And you know, if you want to be youthful as a brand, you have to work with people that are youthful. I think I think that that's true, and but I think I think what it is is having a good mix, because the thing that I found was that uh, there's a there's a big difference also between when when I was first started working there at at Sub Pop, and which is that you kind of worked there because you couldn't get any other job, you know? At Sub Pop? Yeah, at the time. You at know? the time. At the time. It was the, the 90s, time. It was the know? coolest place to well, work. It was though. cool to work there, you know. I just mean in the sense of. You know, there's a lot of like fucked up people working there versus, you know. I mean, it's no different than any other. I mean, I worked at Capitol Records, right? And and more more recently, and just realized there's fucked up people there in a sort of modern corporate record label as much as anywhere else. I think that's just the nature of the music business. Yeah, but there's fucked up people there that work there that went to like college for. Oh, okay. You're saying people that just sort of like stumbled into sub pop yeah. and were just fucked up and yeah. they squatted there and then eventually started kind of working there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. See, I was, I was, I, I started working there because I was volunteering at like an all ages rock club and the woman who kind of oversaw that was worked at sub pop. What was the all ages rock club? It was called the Velvet Elvis in Seattle and the woman Meg Watchkin who ran it. It was kind of like how like how the smell is here. Mm-hmm. Same concept, you know, like one person sort of running this thing. It's all volunteer based. It's all ages, and you know, uh, she was running it. I started volunteering there, and then she was nice enough to get me like sort of an internship at Sub Pop. And then I was there for three hours before someone was like. We need this, someone to fucking like mail out all these singles. Like, so then it it materializes. We just hire you. So then you went into the mailing room, right? Yeah, that's okay. what happened to me at Grand Royal. Right. So I started out as an intern. Right, I was expelled from college and I came back. <laughs> this is what I'm saying, though. Like, and I know I started when I was 18. No, and I started. Um, <laughs> it was it was minimum wage. It was um, so it was inter- I intern for two weeks before, and I won't name names, but the guy who I worked with. The guy in the mail mail room. So if you got a copy of like, you know, any any vinyl from the Beastie Boys from '95 to to like 2000, you probably got it from this guy right. or for, or from me. Right. But the guy, um, he, the he he had picked up a bit of a habit. So like I was a squeaky clean sort of, even though I was, um, you know, I, was I was a bit young and crazy. I was also like, I didn't hang around burnt spoons, mm-hmm. you know. This so is, you're mirroring my exact same existence as far as what, where I so burnt burnt spoons and zoning postal codes not a good combination right yeah. <laughs> yeah. so but I was like astute enough to understand the mailroom and so like that that materialized into trans transcribing uh, tapes for um, like there's this interview in Grand Royal for um, 
Wendy Carlos. Mm-hmm. Um, we, there was this big, the Moog issue that um, came out. I believe it was the third issue of Grand Royal Magazine. And I was just doing anything I could to get into magazines at the time, which is obviously how I, I met you later on, Jessica. But, um, Jessica's but, here as well. So, but, um, but yeah, sort of like how, I mean, you do anything to be able to climb up in that world. And you probably, you started out as an intern, you, you ended up in A&R, NPR. Yeah, mostly P- PR, but I had a few, I had a hand in a few records, but, um, what are you talking about here? Ask about getting, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Usually I do this on my own, but now that Jess is here, she's saying, <laughs> how did you, how did you get expelled from college? That's what. That's what it is. Oh, um, you know, there is the, the, um, I believe it was the football team. It was so long ago. Oh boy. They were being, um, they were bullying some kids. And like, at the time I had like, um, uh, like I think half of my head was bleached and the other half was like a different color. And it was really unusual, uh, you know, at the time it was like 1995. And so, um, so they sort of bullied me, and I ended up making good with them because I had a fake ID that I picked up on Alvarado. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we had a so, fake ID. Too. So, but back then, fake IDs were, were very rare, especially yeah. in your, if you're in a remote town. So I ended up buying beers for them, and, but then I just sort of I turned on them when, I, when they were picking on people. And so I, um, it, was, it was Mischief Week, which is a big thing back east. Uh-huh. It was the day before Halloween. So... I um, they were all sleeping. I put a motor oil on the on the dorm room floors and mayonnaise on their doorknobs. Uh-huh. And so when they woke up in the morning, they fell. And then when they tried to get back in the room, they would op- try to open the door and they would slip because of the mayonnaise on the doors. The little, uh, what do you call it? That's like uh, the swirl on the uh, the frozen yogurt machine. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and so and I had been sort of you know the whole fake ID thing. Like the school was wondering how I was. Um, how everyone was, um, you know, getting alcohol. Dude. They would drink this thing called Mad Dog. Are you oh, yeah, Mad Dog yeah. 2020. Yeah, yeah. Sure. so I, like, that was the thing. I, I, was, I was making money by, you know, selling these things at a, like a 20% markup. Yeah. Pretty fair, right? This is a, you and I have the exact same life. This is scary <laughs> what you're saying because when I got to Seattle, what, what town were you in, by the way? What, what Dover, you... Dover, Delaware. Okay, when I got to Seattle, my friend was going to U, University of Washington. Mm-hmm. And we were both 18. He was in college, and I was living in the U District down the street at, like, a punk house. And someone figured out that online that the New Jersey State ID was very easy to copy uh, all the words and the logo or whatever, the stamp or whatever. And that it was, it was a blue background. So what we would do is we would take a photo of these kids in front of their dorm rooms, which is a blue door, and then we would just cut it out and then stick it onto these New Jersey IDs that we like did. Papa Giorgio from like Le- 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 Las Vegas vacation yeah, Nick exactly. pa- Papa Giorgio yeah. like literally like, like <laughs> holding up the giant ID with your head through the thing but this was kind of like that and it got to the point where we were going to all the bars and we were seeing all the bands in Seattle and it got to the point where there were these like rumors going around that like every club was like had sent out a thing like don't let anyone in from New Jersey into the, the bar because they were all fake IDs, and we were selling them too. And we went to the fucking home or uh, like uh, what do you call it? the Staples and got a got a laminating machine, you know. And then once we used it all, we took it back and returned it and got the money. 
Oh, that reminds me, like the, how I actually even got to got to the front door of the whole um, Beastie Boys universe was we had. Um, do you remember like the um, wristbands and that you would get to go backstage? Sure. But they became a lot more sophisticated yeah. as time went I on. I sold one on Craigslist two weeks ago. Okay, <laughs> well, so you're already in, you're already still in the hustle. But <laughs> but this was like 1993, 94 yeah. when. There was no internet. I mean, there was. There was Prodigy, sure. but like there was no like internet. As Real we know internet. It. Yeah. So the it was a big concert with the Beastie Boys and like I think Rage Against the Machine. It was like free Leonard Peltier. At yeah, the I remember that Bell time. It was, uh, it was like uh, they would have uh, like Buddhist monks perform. No, that's later. That's okay. the Tibetan Freedom Concert. Oh, but this okay, was right. like this was um, to a free Leonard Peltier sure. uh, benefit, and so. And I, you know, I grew up in the South Bay, um, and so it was at Cal State Dominguez Hills, which was, in, you know, I believe, you know, near Carson. Uh-huh. And um, so, okay, we want to go backstage. We're total nerds. We need to make friends by getting all the cool people backstage. So we did a lot of research, which required a lot of phone calls and yellow pages uh-huh. to find out where they make these wristbands. and. Finally, you know the party supply store on Wilcox and Melrose? Yes. Right. So they've been around forever, and that's where you get those. That's where you would get right. those wristbands. I've been there once, yeah. So I would go in there and buy like literally 100 wristbands. So I'd get it my entire high school into these concerts. And, you know, if you're Rage Against the Machine or Beastie Boys, you're wondering, like, what is this group of like 100 like high school kids doing backstage, right. you know? <laughs> And so the jig was up, and I think we got, yeah, we got busted, and I think yeah. we got thrown out. But like, I met, I met um, this guy Bob Mack backstage, who, who was the was the editor for Grand Royal. So I met him, and one of my friends ended up like selling pot to him. So we developed, nurtured that relationship. And so he was he was actually he was the weed dealer I, to, to a lot of people there, even. Even when I was uh, working there in '95, that he nurtured that account. I I can't say his name, but but yeah. Well, his name was actually his name was Chip. I'll just leave it at that. (laughs) That's not his real name, but that's the name he used. And he was a chip off the old block. Right, right. That's what our version of that was. uh, We would go to the the party supply store and get those those little raffle tickets that you bought that um, they they would hand out for raffles because that's what. Clubs gave you as drink tickets. Oh yeah, and so yeah, we yeah. Would have like a box of those in the van, all different colors. Oh my so god! Just, you'd go into the club and they'd be like, "Here's your two drink tickets. They're good for Pabst and like well drinks." And we'd be like, <laughs> okay, cool. And then we'd go back to the van and just like rattle off as many as we needed, you know, and just do, do that all night. That's a, like I think that's such like cool, cool, like innocent naughtiness, you know. <laughs> Like I think, like in this day and age, that doesn't really exist anymore. No, Back then, you had to be clever about yeah. your hustle. Now it's like now they call the cops on. Yeah, or like yeah, it becomes a big yeah. So let's let's start at the beginning then, because so where did where did you grow up then in in South Bay? South Bay, yeah. Um, first Torrance and Palos Verdes, um, and uh, Palos Verdes predominantly. Rolling Hills, Palos Verdes. Palos Verdes is okay, it's right so next to San Pedro and sure, Long Beach. Sure, I've been out there. We've been out to like PV Cove out there to like go uh, scope out like surf spots out there. Yeah, yeah. But I always localize. I, I, I think of South Bay. I think of fucking San Francisco. So you I'm get a standard issue surfboard, wrong. skateboard. It's such like a tip. Like it's like SST Records was just 
you know, up the street in um, right. in Hermosa. I believe Hermosa Beach. I think like, they were in Hermosa. Yeah. Hermosa. So like it was it, that sort of influenced a lot of that community. Even like Palos which was a little bit more uh, affluent, you'd get more sort of wealthier middle upper class punk kids as well. Right. Um, but like that was. Um, you know, like innocent naughtiness. Those, those, that punk culture was really. It was home to that sort of punk culture and vibe. What about the Lunata Bay Boys and all that? Oh, stuff? the Bay Boys. Yeah. So there was a localized surf spot called Haggerty's. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate to surf there because, well, I was a local, but like we were one of the kids, and those guys were really intense. And like for us, we would kind of, in a sense, kind of laugh at them because they were taking themselves a little too seriously. It became very real to us, like what they were doing when we, you know, we saw crack pipes, yeah. which that was, that was a lot for us. Whoa, whoa. And then, um, they had knives and they're all like they lawyers. Now, though, right? Yeah, they all, they all are now, but, and we saw some really old dudes. They would write, it was a lot like, and they had really sort of emulated the point break, the bad guys in point break. That was yeah. like, they were all had that kind of vibe. Like everyone looked like Patrick Swayze. Right. You know, yeah. In, in well, that's break. the thing they always say. You know, like in, in as far as when punk sort of started, at least on the West Coast versus New York or England, mm -hmm. or, you know. But the but the L.A. kind of Southern California version of it was that like in L.A. you had like the Germs and you had the Bags and you had X and you had these. Well, that's like Hollywood. Sure, Hollywood. Uh, that's what I mean. L.A. LA but I'm like LA. South Bay is, I think, and if I may. South Bay is very different than Hollywood punk, and like Darby Crash is very I'm getting at though. That's different what I'm than saying. I'm saying like the, in and the, yeah. The South Bay is is more like the jock culture. They would say you know. I wouldn't like, call it the jock culture. I would say like, <clears throat> sorry, I, I, I if I'm interjecting. No, here, no, no, but, do it. Um, Explain it's it sort me. of like um, suburban kids, which yeah. is like in a way like Canoga Park, where Bad Religion was. Like they're sort of like suburban punks right. you know like hanging out at 7-Eleven I'm thinking about TSOL versus the germs you know yeah. like sort of like the, the, the bigger guys versus the guys that were like putting on makeup and stuff the like bigger that. guy the only bigger guy was Henry Rollins and he came much later and he's from DC right but but that was that was before but there's no big guys there weren't the, no there were the no TSOL big guys TSOL guys weren't big well, I don't think T TSOL I think I think and correct me if I'm wrong they're from Orange County which is okay, which is like Nixon, Nixon right. land like right. that's you know the Orange Curtain right. Republican we don't we didn't much like the Orange County kids right yeah well I'm just thinking about like sort of the Lunata Bay boys it seems like the further south you get you, it gets more aggressive but they were all still good kids even yeah. though they were like underneath like they were yeah. just, it was a facade. Right. You know? And I think, um, you know, a lot, I'm sure they carry the facade on still, but to a lesser degree since they all got busted. But, you know, it's, yeah. And so where, where did your thing. family come from, though? You're from... You're, Originally, you're from I, I was born in Tehran, Iran, um, and I came out when I was five months old. So my parents left to check it out. They opened up a rib shop called the House of Ribs. Ribs? In Torrance, Yeah. <laughs> Like Torrance, like Port on the board, like more, I think Linwood or Torrance, like North, North Torrance. Like if you take Hawthorne. What was the name of it? House of Ribs. Oh, House of Ribs. Okay. Which makes perfect sense if you're Persian coming to, you know, um, the, you know, inner city in Los Angeles in the 70s. Right. 1976. Like, uh -huh. That makes total sense, right? There's Not a kebab shop, but like a rib shop. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting 
there's different ways of looking at it, you know, like that would be like weirdly frowned upon now, but I remember right. like Col- cultural appropriation, not even cultural appropriation. But I think for them it was more assimilation. Exactly. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Because you look at New Orleans and you look at Louisiana and you, and Houston and you see a, a, a large Vietnamese culture, their population, and they came over after the war and they started uh, cooking crawfish and stuff like that and mm-hmm. cooking sort of traditional southern food and now you have this huge culture of like Vietnamese crawfish and all this stuff and now it's and, but now obviously the cool thing to do would be to do a, like a kebab place right. and like Eater will write about it <laughs> and it's like a whole you know it's such a different <laughs> different world now right. it's a different world that like I was watching uh, uh, it was like Anthony Bourdain talking about um uh, Persian food and mm-hmm. like going into he went to Iran and um, he got into how elaborate like uh, cul- you know I don't I don't want to say culinary but like um, culinary arts if you will I, I do consider what they do in art because it's so laborious yeah. like Persian food takes like takes 12 hours to do a good stew right and so that's why the best and to one thing he down co- like all these like kind of tough cuts of meat is that what you're talking about exactly yeah but also just very elaborate um, uh, herbs and, and vegetables and, yeah, spices. Um, but one thing he – and I'll come back to what you were, you were asking. But the one thing he covered, which I'm uh, – being that, you know, my heritage is obviously in, – in many cases, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the government and the people are just good people. But, sure. um, you know, and the cuisine, you know, has developed over um, centuries – it's very elaborate, and so it's very. The foods are really rich, but the best um, Persian cuisine is found in homes, just because it's cost prohibitive to do. You know, spend twelve hours on a dish at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, oftentimes when you eat at a Persian restaurant, especially in Los Angeles, being that there's such a huge population of Persians here, um, you typically you don't get the best food. Mm-hmm. And not to diss on those restaurants, but. What he covered, which I thought was really cool, was that, in fact, the best Persian cuisines are made by, you know, your your mom and dad at home. Yeah. And my mom, I had a really great cook, and I learned a lot from her. I never, ever, you know, even attempted those dishes. They're, they're like rocket science. But well, maybe if you're in Iran, it's better. I mean, or it could be as good at a restaurant. Because for me, I grew up with a bunch of kids from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And I feel the same way, because... A lot of the kids that I grew up with were from Laos or mm-hmm. Lao, or I'm not sure exactly how you say it, but versus when you're in L.A. or, or America in general, you're going to get a lot of Thai food, and then sort of the closest thing you're going to get to Lao food is like what they call northern Thai food, mm-hmm. but I've never had northern Thai food or Lao food at a restaurant that was anywhere near as good or interesting as what my friends, moms, and sisters would make for us when we were and kids. And why, why do you think that is? Uh, I just think that um, maybe they're, they're fearful of, of turning off, like, Western palates to, like, making something too spicy or mm. making something too sour right. or, you know, because part of it is really a lot of spice, a lot of sweet, and then a lot of, like, sour mm-hmm. and almost, like, and bitter, too. They like bitter uh, yeah. uh, flavors. And so just to have something... That complex is what I remember eating as a kid. I, I just don't find it in in a Thai restaurant, you right. know. Or even when I have Northern Thai food here, it's never as good as. Or maybe it's what's, just because you remember it as Jitlada? a kid. Is Jitlada? Jitlada is like Northern Northern, Northern, Thai. Northern Thai. That's, and that's pretty close to what 
But I also think maybe, you know, you just remember it as a kid differently, you know, and, yeah. and when you had it for the first time. Have you been to Jet Lotta recently? I haven't been there in years. Jess and I went there maybe like fucking 10 years ago or something like that. I, I don't know. Have you been there recently? Yeah, I just went there. Was it's, it good? It's still, still pretty good. Well, I got to go again and ch- check it out because that's what they call Northern Thai, which is like sort of the more... And Night and Market, sorry, I'm, I don't... Night it, Market's great. Is that Northern Thai as well? Uh, I think some of the dishes yeah. are, you know, some of the stuff at Night Market I've never even heard of, you know, like, I mean, I'm not an expert on it, I'm just, I'm talking about kind of what you're saying, which is, I'm I'm just used to the, the home-cooked sort right. of, like, whatever right. they were making, and, I, and if I go there and ask, and ask for a dish of what they called it back in the day they won't even know what i'm talking about right but also because of my accent you know they're not gonna understand right. what i'm even saying you know but i remember like green papaya salad being very different mm-hmm. when i was a kid what i what i equate green papaya is it, salad it was it spicy the one that you had way spicier for, for yeah instance, i like know? it spicy <laughs> i think that's too. how it's supposed to be i think it's supposed to be very spicy and also but i also now i don't like it that spicy anymore because i can't handle it right that spicy but anyways so, so do, you have, oven, do you have IBS? Yeah, if I eat Thai food now, yeah, because yeah, I'm 38 it's, 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 years old. You know? Oh, you're 38. Yeah, when I was, well, wait till you're 41. Yeah, well, about three years. When I when no, I was, it's a lot of changes in three years. There's I believe things, it. Things, a lot of things 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 in the last three years. Things happen in your body chemistry. It's been a fucking roller coaster. Oh my so, god! Yeah, you know the thing that I noticed lately is the the pee doesn't come out as strong. <laughs> it just kind of dribbles out now, <laughs> which sucks because it just like it kind of just dribbles onto the toilet now. Uh, in the last year, I've noticed that. Um, what was I going to say about that, though? Ah, uh, fuck, I can't remember. Oh, wait, House of Ribs. What, what kind of, was this like an American-style barbecue place? You know, there's not much documentation, and yeah. I only just remember from my you know, recoll- you know, brief recollection. But, yeah, it was unsuccessful, and it, 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 you know, it didn't, didn't really take off. You know, it's like a, you, know, you ever hear about the two Persian guys that started a rib shop and Linwood in 1976. No, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so no. But anyway, so my you know, my my dad, um, you know, he started, uh, you know, uh, very wisely started a grocery store in the inner cities and yeah. catered to uh, Latino population. Yeah. Because you know at the time that didn't exist, and it was a very obvious business model. Like, okay, there's a growing Latino population in Southern California, Los Angeles. And there's not many um, supermarkets that cater to them. So then why shouldn't we have their, you know, indigenous foods available sure. for them? Well, so that's what he did. A lot of that food is locally grown. Yeah. Right? And so that's what he did. It's a very obvious. I think, like, some of the best ideas are obviously, you know, and now you see more and more, like, there are just obvious ideas. Well, and what was the place called, the grocery store? It was called Top Value. There's still uh-huh. one yeah. on... There's still one on Bandini in San Pedro. Okay. Um, which is like, so like, you know, I, growing up, spent a lot of time in Bandini. I was, I was a, I was a box boy uh-huh. um, in San Pedro. Yeah. So. Um, Did Mike Watt ever come in? Yeah, no, well, I, that, that's the thing is that, no, I became friends with him and yeah. still to this day, we just did a, a, a magazine for the winery called Yearbook, uh-huh. which Brian designed and everything I ever do Mike Watts in yeah. so when I worked for this company Catalyst sadly I had to take a job at Catalyst Ashton Kutcher's company he started a digital division brought me in to head it um, and like you you know the YouTube creators project where they they gave like a million dollars to 
like Vice, yeah. Catalyst, like okay. ten media I, companies. I heard the name. I didn't know. What and they then were. like they're like create thirty hours of content. Uh-huh. Like sure. go and so. I was like, well, we're, first call I'm going to have to make is to Mike Watt. This sort of has been an ongoing thing, like, since I was 18 years old. Yeah. Like, Mike has been in everything I've done. He's still a mentor and a good friend. Yeah. Like, probably it's funny, like, all, of all the friends I've maintained from that era of my life, Mike Watt is right. one of the few. I'll email him, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? Come down. I'm like, okay. This is funny, because... Tony I- K. So I had Tony K, the director of American History X, come down and go, and like... And Tony K was another mentor of mine, so I I I, know, I certainly know how to pick them, uh-huh. you know. So Tony K, the catalyst, like, um, so I was like, all right, Tony, let's go and film Mike Watt. He's like, I don't know anything about him. I was like, you guys, you are a punk, like your your ethos is punk rock, even though you're you know filmmaker and you know you like um, you don't necessarily listen to punk. That's you know it's the you know culture that I sure. think you represent. So anyways, like. They met each other for the first time. Like they, it's kind of like if you see, if you meet, if you look at yourself in the mirror, you're gonna have like maybe not the best reaction. Or if you meet yourself, you're not gonna have the best reaction. Sure. Yeah, it I was one of those things. Yeah. So my two mentors, right. who I like put up on pedestal, ended up getting into it right. at Mike's apartment. Right, because like we came <laughs> and like Tony came with a camera literally the size of this room. And like he hand he and he's getting older now. I was like trying to hold it, and he's tipping over. It's so big with like a, a lens, like like t- you know, a, uh, what do you call it? Tele tele telescoping telescoping lens, like this big. It's the size of Mike Watt's apartment. Yeah, and like he's like, I'm not going to be acting for you. And he's like, No, no, it's that's not what's happening. So they get into it because he doesn't want to be like. <laughs> portrayed as like you know fake. uh fake or like you know small c yeah the real deal so like they get into it they start arguing for like a half hour finally and i almost think like mike was trying to build some like tension and emotion before he goes on camera so like <laughs> but my point was everything i've ever but it was it's a great documentary that we did which was on the channel but then has since been taken off since the company folded um, another good one, Julian Nitzberg, oh, uh, uh, directed this Patton Oswalt one. Julian Nitzberg's in line for uh, the podcast for sure. He's amazing. But it's funny because I was literally, I was emailing Mike. Sorry, I keep going into like all these segues. No, I was emailing, I just wanted to tell you that I was emailing Mike Watt last night. And as I was, as I was writing him about a song, I was, trying to, I was trying to ask him to let me on his podcast and then also have him come on this podcast. And I was writing him and I said, Hey, we have a new song. Rollins just played it on his radio show. And as I was typing Rollins, I got an email from Henry Rollins with a photo of Henry Rollins holding one of our records. And it kind of scared me for a minute because I was like, is he, does Henry Rollins know that I'm emailing Mike Watt right now? Like, it was kind of fucking weird. So that's trippy. So now I get a, I, and, and then of course Watt wrote me back and he was like, he's like, hey man, I've played everything you've ever sent me. So like, I don't know, what do you want me to do? You want me to do like Skype and I'll play bass or something? So now I have to. Re- how sweet is that, man? <laughs> no, like, how sweet is the, the, you know, he probably has a million kids emailing him. Imagine how many sort of like, lost kids he's collected sure. over decades yeah. and he still responds he still remembers like who do. i am Both yeah and of it, them do. it's like that's a rarity that's not what people are like anymore imagine how many people rollins has you know i mean and he, and he oh writes back God. every time he writes me back you know? that's the one thing like i learned like so opening the winery in the tasting room like um i actually work the floor 
So I did, I did like then sort of when I, when I, I don't mean to shift back and forth, but when I left Capital to, to develop this winery, um, I went and, and joined the Court of Master Sommeliers mm-hmm. and sort of it's four levels, four being a master, I got up to two and learned service, learn how to serve wine and learn about wine yeah. from all the different regions. So if I'm going to make wine, make wine or be a producer of wine, I wanted to actually know how to taste it right. and work with talented winemakers, but understand what I want and then how to articulate what I want. Right. And um, But I was working the floor and the going back to Mike Watt or this sort of ethos of um, being connected to the people, um, I work the floor, I serve people on the floor, and that's a very important part. It's sort of like being connected to the people that are buying your product. Yeah. So a lot of wineries that, you know, there's fancy owners um, won't do that. They sit behind or like, you know, or are, um, you know, satellite owners. They're not working the floor. Right. And like, that's the one thing, like the floor is not a dirty place. So if a kid comes and starts working on the floor for us, I, you know, we don't, first of all, we don't have, um, there are no sacred cows at our winery and everybody works the floor. I'll wash dishes and, you know, it's sort of, it's a, it's very much a punk rock ethos, mm-hmm. like, and something that I probably picked up by people like Mike Watt, passing it down and being like, hey, look, I'm no better than you. I just make music yeah. and, you know. I've definitely picked that up from them and, and that's one thing that, like, I'm definitely not in the same league as far as like the amount of mail I get, but I get probably yeah. I don't think anybody gets as much mail as that guy. Right, I get mail though all the time via Facebook, via email, via Instagram about the band from all over the world, from South America, from Australia, from Japan, and I and just from the not not just from those guys, but always think you gotta write back and you gotta you write to. back. With something other than like thanks, yeah, you you're not you're not here. you're not Tom York, and fuck Tom Tom York, <laughs> anyways. But you know, but like people that like take themselves too seriously, and that. Well, let's talk about the winery because I want to talk about wine, and I want to talk about the winery specifically. And so, so what what got you to start this winery then? Because your dad has a winery too. Yeah. But when did that winery start? That he started that winery in in '98. Oh, okay. It's I been thought a it was a long it was time. Long. That is long. But and okay. you know, we we weren't too close until um, obviously until I got into this project, started learning a lot from him. And for me, like I was working in Capitol Records, and mm-hmm. I was looking around and seeing a lot of younger people. They were far more talented than me. I, you know, there's nothing... And I was, like, pushing forward. At the label. At the label. And yeah. there's nothing... I, I don't know. As a f- turning 40, I just saw kids running circles around me. I was like, oh, boy. And I'm getting paid, like, four times as much as they are. Sure. Um, this goes back to what we were talking about with Sub Pop and Jonathan. And, and you need it, those young... You yeah. Need young turnover. But I was just like, oh, oh, boy. Like, and I could tell the sort of knives, knives were out. And I had picked up a lot of bad habits at the time. So I figured, you know, in order to sort of absolve myself from those habits, probably a good idea to get into the alcohol business, you know? <laughs> so, no, but actually, um, the process of making wine m- m- gave, you know, uh, gave me a reverence for what is happening in the chemistry that's happening in the mm-hmm. glass. And so um, it wasn't about catching a buzz. It was really about, I, 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 saw, I started seeing wine as food. Sure. And I started to see it in a different light. Um, and over time, I just quit smoking eight weeks ago. And that was the last of my 
really terrible habits yeah. and use like your ima- use your imagination ago. of like all the different habits. Jessica saw me probably at my at my worst at the time when I was in my early twenties, but but get it, part of it was like you know I was like I'd thrown up blood a few times in 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 at the record label and I was like you know it was pretty pretty disgusting and ugly and um I was just like I need a clean break yeah. and so I wanted to be closer to my dad get to know him more and um and uh yeah I was I I, I interned for him um for a few months learned a little bit about the business working there I realized I'm I'm totally not a good fit for it but understood his business model and in a lot of ways replicated his business model mm-hmm. with a totally different kind of wine, totally different kind of brand. Sure. You know, our wines are more, um, you know, a little bit more cerebral in so much that they are, um, they celebrate herbal notes, acid, and they're what I like to call food adjacent, wines that pair well with foods. Uh, also wines that I, I, I want to stand the test of time and acidity is a big part of that. Most sort of modern populist wines lack that they're what what's commonly referred to in the in the um, industry as flabby so high ph low acid Mm -hmm. uh, where we make low ph or or moderate ph lower acid it's kind of like when you make guacamole if you add a little bit of extra lemon juice to it it's a preservative Mm -hmm. it'll allow it to age longer it won't turn brown immediately sure get a couple days out of it so I started drinking those old wines from the 60s in California, like BV, Robert Mondavi in the 70s, Ridge, uh, and those wines stood the test of time, and I could find them online for 150 bucks, so it was affordable, and I took a bottle of 69 BV, made by Andre Chalichev, went to Animal on Fairfax one night, and I sort of saw the future. I was like, is there any way to make this wine at 12, 12.5% alcohol? which is nowadays wine is at like 15.5% alcohol, Mm -hmm. which if you have 15.5% alcohol wine, you're going to get a headache. It's like, um, it's, it's like a sipping wine. It's like drinking, you know, yeah, it's sipping wine and it's just, you don't feel the freshness and it's sort of, it's very dark and it's like, it's like a tool album, you know, or it's like, we're trying to do (laughs) Minutemen music, you know? So anyways, um, sorry for the, uh, strange segues here but um, i was just thinking about i don't i don't do this perfect i don't do podcasts i'm all you know i was just remembering when i was a kid i had a tool cd and then you opened it up and they had like a hologram and it was like a guy sucking his own cock it's too much on how you like it's far too much flip the cd back and forth man takes himself way too seriously in his wine but he also makes wine i haven't uh, had his wine yeah I shouldn't talk. No, but so okay. So walk me through how you like found the 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 land and the spot and what. So my dad, my dad owned the owned the owned the vineyard with a partner, and those two had a falling out. Mm-hmm. And I um, uh, raised a little bit of capital and acquired it, and started selling him those grapes as a form of revenue mm-hmm. to keep the place afloat while yeah. I raised more money for building the winery. So this was like a, it happened pretty fast. It started in 14, middle of 14, uh, like July, where I acquired it. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, immediately started farming organically and, um, and developed it into what it is. Hired Steve Mathiason, uh, who's, if, you know, you should, his brand is Mathiason. He makes incredible wine. 
by wherever yeah, in I've LA. Seen that line. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And uh, worked with him in developing the vineyard, and um, um, eventually started the brand. Started working with Brian Rotinger, who you guys work with mm-hmm. on on the labels. Um, yeah. And it sort of continued to build and build. And then Barbara Bester, the architect, who you know, I guess you know, is uh, she's a reluctant. I like to call reluctant architect. Mm-hmm. Um, she when I start. <laughs> I started working, and she, she, by the way, she was an architect at Grand Royal and uh, um, helped with the offices there. So I have this sort of lineage uh, with her because I didn't know any architects either. Like, okay, we're building a winery, but I've never built anything physical in my, in my life. So, um, so it's sort of like it, it was about putting together a group of people, and that's something I've always done. I've Essentially, my, my talent is putting together people. Mm-hmm. I've always sort of like... I own that. I do that really well. I have pretty much no other talent except hiring the right people. Um, and so the combination of Brian and Barbara and Steve Mathiason, I, and they're all very like-minded. You know, they all share a lot of common beliefs, and they all quite like each other. They all really respect each other. Um, and so that's what it was. It became this sort of, like, punk ethos-driven, you know, um, but form and function converges, so meaning like doing things uh, always intentionally and not for posterity. Um, so the building itself is highly functional. Um, everything's there for a reason. Like the zigzag shade structure, it's a shade structure. It gets fucking hot in, in Napa Valley these days because of climate change. So yeah. it's there to protect against shade. I wanted to talk to you about that. You When we were up there, when we came up for the event uh, a few weeks ago, and you were showing us the different types of wine. So, so, Wine is basically based... The type of wine is based on the type of grape that produces it. and then But then you have blends, blends obviously. You know, yeah. Or, and then when you blend something, then you come up with a new name for it. Is that how it works? or? Well, I think notwithstanding uh, that, the most important part for us anyways, and what should be for a lot of people, is the site. And so... Um, it's the actual vineyard. So whether or not you're doing a Cabernet Franc, you could do a Cabernet Franc and a Merlot blend, but same from the same vineyard. Mm-hmm. That has a unique DNA, a unique taste. Like, you know, the, when I was talking about the Court of Master Sommeliers, a level four Master Sommelier, and there, there's some alchemy in this, can taste, you know, a um, probably identify a uh, vineyard from... Um, you know, can probably identify what's probably the most famous vineyard, uh, uh, Domaine de la Romani Conti, uh, which produces a, a wine from uh, Latache, which is a vineyard in Burgundy. Of course, mm-hmm. they only work yeah. with Pinot Noir, but like he could probably taste that bottle of wine and identify it specifically from that vineyard, right. which is to say, like human beings, each vineyard has its own DNA and its own identity. So, don't worry about varietals as much as about the vineyard. And that's what you should sort of, if you, you're sort of collecting something or like um, identifying something, identify the vineyard, which is goes back to the design. So Brian, which is like, you know, comes up with some pretty, um, you know, elaborate at times and, and um, um, designy um, uh, products and record labels and what have you. When he started developing the design for it, we were like, well, it should be about always going back to the vineyard. So he, we took a Burgundian model and um, identified the AVA, American Viticultural Area, which is Napa Valley, 
the sub-AVA, which for us is Oak Knoll District of Napa mm-hmm. Valley, yeah. and then the vineyard name, which is A&D Vineyard. So, you know, uh, you know, in sequence, that's what's on the label, black type on white background, and it's all about what's in the bottle. So it's I- ironic. People, when I start, started showing it to people, the label, it was very underwhelming for people. They're like, well, we were expecting something like, like if you've seen The Prisoner or like Machete or these sort of like showy wine labels, they were expecting something like that, which mm-hmm. was like heavily branded. But for us, we dove into the bottle, right. which is like something that nobody expected. I remember uh, my first introduction actually to Brian Rodinger. Is that that's how you say I it? I think it's Rodinger. Rodinger. Was years ago when I was at Sub Pop, I was speaking to Steve Aoki back mm-hmm. when you back yeah, when you could speak, back when you could speak to Steve Aoki. <laughs> he wasn't throwing a cake at me or something <laughs> with five thousand topless girls or whatever the fuck he's. I have no idea. I see his, he's in Vegas apparently, but I was emailing with him and I was trading some records with him, and we were trading some sub pop release. And he sent me this uh, thing they did, and it was a Brian Rodinger designed sort of like thing that all fit together it was very elaborate yeah. record packaging I, again i sold it on ebay or something <laughs> like that but it was he does a very interesting sort of intricate thing so it's interesting that he did a kind of a straight label for you guys where you guys are just basically trying to let people know exactly what's in the bottle versus projecting out yeah but where does the name ashes and diamonds come from then that was a, i was i was really um i had had a night and um that was going into the next day and i was um, working uh, on a brief for a um, uh, a very well-known pop star princess at Capitol Records, and I was hitting a snag, and no, it wasn't a brief actually. Sorry, my memory is really fuzzy. It was a lyric video for her that we had already shot, okay. which ultimately got shelved. Right. And I'm not going to get into that. You know, everyone probably meant well, but um, so. <laughs> I was watching Hulu, and Hulu had just put on the Criterion Collection on, on its library. And so I was just going through, trying to look for, you know, trying to buy time till, till 6 p.m. when I could leave, and just looking for some, some kind of inspiration. I came across this really cool artwork for this movie, Ashes and Diamonds. And in the movie, uh, the protagonist comes to a crossroad in this movie. Now, mind you, this is a, a, a pretty, pretty dark movie, uh, a glorious movie, but a dark movie about... Um, post World War II in Poland. Who's in uh, the movie? Um, I'd be butchering the pronunciation okay, of everyone's name, but it was, it was made by Andre Andre Waja, um, and uh, and it was part of a trilogy. And so, the in the movie, the protagonist falls in love with this girl, and they're sort of lucky in love, running around um, uh, uh, Warsaw, and they come across this uh, inscription on a graffiti wall. And it says, ashes hold the glory of a star-like diamond, the morning star of everlasting triumph, which is essentially a metaphor for how carbon turns, pressure and carbon turns into um, diamonds. So he was at a crossroads. Incidentally, he was an assassin. So he was at a crossroads. Does he sort of fall, continue with his heart in love, or does he continue on as an assassin? Or he continues on as an assassin and ultimately was murdered at the end of the movie it was kind of a crossword for me i saw like sort of like love and death and it's probably and i was just like working on a lyric video during this no it's really it's really bad but they were sort of like premium premiumization of lyric video so it was like a hybrid yeah it was like right around the time where happy came out which was essentially like a lyric video yeah um my friend was in that video actually he was one of the dancers i kind of like that video no it was (laughs) 
No, so I, I I saw it sort of as a I had personal meaning, and then also like later on I, I saw it as a metaphor for the vineyard in in terms of what struggle a vineyard needs to go through to make great wine. Right. So like we dry farm, so that means we don't give the the um, we don't water our vineyards um, because that you know uh, it helps dig the roots deeper, and so. Again, you're sort of adding sort of um, pressure, creating these hard conditions for the um, grapevines, which yield optimal results. So I sort of saw it as a metaphor for the vineyard mm-hmm. and kind of was like, okay, I got to I got to just you call that. Like- by the way, let me just add another thing. <laughs> okay. Trying to come up with a name in this day and age. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, incidentally, because um, Francis Ford Crooked Vultures has a band. Name. No, ex- exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the band names suck these days. Um, like, um, so anyway, like, and this was how hard it was. Like, Francis Cord- Ford Coppola owned the rights to the w- diamonds. In if you're making wine, because he has a diamond collection. Okay. So immediately when we published it, we got a season desist from Coppola, and we're like, "Oh, geez, come on!" Yeah. Like we haven't even started yet, and like we racked our brains for this name, Ashes and Diamonds, and now the season desist. desist. Ultimately, we ended up sort of like, and I don't know if he he knows anything about this. He probably doesn't. He just probably has a group of attorneys dealing with this for him. Ultimately, we made a deal where, um, you know, we wouldn't use like a diamond on the label. And we were one of the few brands that got to use the word diamonds in its label. And what's kind of cool about it is he protects our name now for us. So he's paying the legal bills. So the next time say someone wants to come up with a name for a winery called like I don't know boogers and diamonds or mm-hmm. you know uh, rubies and diamonds whatever I don't need to pay for right. attorney fees like Francis Ford Coppola is going to do a season to this and fight sure. the good fight for me and and the irony in this is is I think it's one of his favorite movies too so it's all very serendipitous and and almost like I was like okay this is now meant to be at this right. point so and when you got there so the 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 grapes that were there those are what kind of grapes are on the land first? So there's a, there's um, the the vineyard was planted um, by Robert Mondavi mm-hmm. in the 80s. Yeah, um, and there it was essentially a vineyard that they would use. You know, it was a potpourri of different varietals. Oak Knoll at the time was sort of like Highland Park in Napa Valley, mm-hmm. like 10 years ago maybe. Yeah. Um, so people weren't really paying attention to it, and so they just planted whatever Syrah, Chardonnay. Merlot, Cabernet Franc, Semillon, Sauvignon Blanc, you name it. Um, ultimately, um, what's been discovered, and we have old, old grapevines are great. So they make, again, the roots run deeper. Older vines make more nuance. Um, I noticed the, wines, the, the, yeah. the, the vines that are on your winery are, are very thick. Yeah, that's because they're older. And they're yeah. ashy uh, and, and sort of falling apart. Those, that's good. So, because we make lower alcohol wines, so if they're older, they're not going to produce as much sugar, uh-huh. but they give you a lot of um, uh, phenolically in the, the grape skins. They are uh, they are uh, going to develop more complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, I don't know how I ended up on that. So I'm kind of oh, now saying, I'm kind of lost. I was asking you what kind the the wine that was there. You oh okay, it was got there it. when you got. So as there, it turns so. out, Merlot and Cabernet Franc do really well there so that's what i decided to make not because i like merlot i do like cabernet franc but like because that's what the vineyard produces 
well. And so it's a cool vineyard because, um, and I don't know if I'm nerding out here and boring you guys, but it's the soils have low potassium. So if you have a lot of acid in your stomach, you, what do you do? You, you eat a banana, banana is yeah. high in potassium. Similarly, uh, this is low in potassium, so it makes for uh, a, a wine that's um, lower in pH, so fresher More acidic, uh, acidity. Yeah. The cool part about this is that um, it's also a, a pretty boisterous uh, uh, vineyard, so it will it will um, sort of in the gravelly clay loam that it has, um, it, which is ideal for Merlot and Cabernet Franc. It makes really luscious. Um, luscious um, fruit too. So you combine luscious sort of um, uh, weighty fruit with acidity. It, it's a perfect balance. You get sort of the the mid, the high, and the low with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way we make it is we we don't take it out to sixteen percent alcohol, and we want to keep it lower. But like we are vintage one was around fourteen point five percent alcohol. We started dry farming it. We started to um, drop less fruit, and we got it down a little bit more to the 13. So I like to be under 14% alcohol if I can. If it goes over, it goes over. I'm, you know, we're in the business of making the best wine. Um, we don't do any additives in our wine, so we don't inoculate. We don't use, um, uh, uh, y- you know, uh, commercial yeast. We do everything uh, it's naturally. Wild yeast. Is that, yeah, it's yeast. Yeah, it's native fermentations on that wine. Uh, I, I uh, a footnote. It, ever since 2016, that's the case with our winemaker Diana Snowden Sess, who came on board. And so before, there's two vintages where commercial yeast were were used. But you know, look, the, the it's not a matter of oh you did this or you did that. What I've noticed the difference in commercial and native yeast is you get a more expressive wine. It's still a great wine. The 14 and the 15 are great, but you get a step you go a step deeper in extracting the ultimate DNA of that vineyard when you don't we we don't obscure the identity with things like commercial yeast which mm-hmm. has a certain way of doing things it's sort of it's been mass produced this commercial yeast so it's going to give you the same um, attributes whereas a native yeast it, there's only one native yeast and it's in that vineyard mm-hmm. the microflora in that vineyard and in that tank yeah. so it becomes its unique id like dna just like how you would have in your body we found it in we were in uh belgium and we went to the cantillon uh brewery there and they brew it all they've been brewing it there for hundreds of years or whatever and it's whatever the yeast is that's in the in the air is what they use to brew the beer there. yeah and, and that's kind of they're famous for that you yeah know? And it's their specific thing that they not to diminish people that use, you know, you make great wine using commercial yeast. I will say, like, I do, I don't, I look down upon you if you use uh, herbicides and pesticides in your vineyard. That's so just a fucking your, no-no. It's, it's biodynamic. Can, then that's what the some of the vineyards are. Ours is organic. And okay. I'll say this: What's um, the difference? Between so those I, I think there's a little bit of, um, I think there's some evangelism with biodynamic, but I, 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 I think I'm not an expert, so I can't say definitively but you know there are some elements of biodynamic farming uh that i agree with the part about you know the um cow hooves um i don't know if i'm i really uh, agree with it What's and the also cow hooves part? they put like cow dung in um hooves like um uh, cow hooves uh-huh. i believe um 
and they bury it in the ground. I don't necessarily agree with that. I do believe, um, you know, um, being in line with um, uh, the moon in terms of when you harvest, I, I, I believe in the, the moon has a lot to do with mm-hmm. um, what happens in the vineyard. So that part I, I do believe. But there's the um, biodynamic, um, the ethos of biodynamic um, uh, farming was developed by Rudolf Steiner. Um, and if you've seen the movie Master, you know about L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because, you know, we come from an era with L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology where we're sort of suspect about. And not to diminish those people, they're great people, it's religion like anything else, but it came a little too close for home, for, to home for me. And I sort of was like, this guy, there's a lot of sort of snake oil in this I know for what you're me. Talking about. So, I mean, but, but, but it does make great wine, too. I mean, people that do biodynamic farming make great wine, so I can't really knock it. And by the way, I'm not an expert, so I can't well, really I just thought it say. meant organic, so I didn't even know. That, yeah, so you know. to answer your question, we took it organic. One of these days I might, you know, for a fact, go biodynamic, just try it out. Right. But for well, it's certain... Like I hear about these guys in like Mexico that are making tequila, and they'll like hang like a chicken breast in the vat while they're like you know uh, distilling their you know things like that. that yeah. But maybe they're just passed down traditions, you know. Yeah. And maybe it's a maybe it's a good luck charm versus yeah, does it actually it's, it's work? All good. You know, does it I mean, do we, anything to bury a cow stuff in a wine in a, in a vineyard? You know. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it. all these rituals make it kind of interesting, sure. right? And you know, so. And that's what I mean. That's what goes back to the Scientology thing. It might might. Folks were in Scientology for about a minute. Sorry, yeah, I have friends that are Scientologists, so I'm not, I don't <laughs> so, mean to no, talk I shit think, about I think it. We all do, but you know, Jess and I were fortunate enough to know Adam Parfrey, and I'm sure you knew him, at Feral House Publishing, and uh, we went. To, what, what did he publish? Uh, well, like Apocalypse Culture, and, and oh, okay, and, and yeah, yeah, the, yeah, 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 the uh, all, all sorts of a million books, and yeah, the Unabomber Diaries, and yeah, stuff and correspondence. We went. There was a memorial for him the other day, and we went. and And I think you know there was a lot of the a lot of the people, Boyd Rice, Michael Moynihan, these people that were there made me think of sort of what you were saying as far as like Elron Hubbard in the night. There was a lot of like at the time there was a lot going on. People writing about these sort of things and you know these rituals and the Jack Parsons and the you know yeah. the, the, this idea and I didn't realize that biodynamic had so much to do yeah, with it. Yeah, no, the guy Rudolf Steiner, Google him. He's yeah. a pretty crazy guy. I mean, these people that jerking, can create their own world. The moon there basically. Yeah. yeah. Like, no, really. No, yeah. I know. Yeah, I I know what it is. <laughs> I didn't realize it had to, that that's what it was with biodynamic wines. I just I'd known about these other Well, the guy rituals, who who you know? the guy who came up with it, you know, Rudolf Steiner did some, you know, had a, had a questionable background You're as well. Into, like sort of Al- Alistair Crowley, Men in Black territory. Yeah, like, well, opening. Yeah, sure. And letting. Yeah, out. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, I, I wanted to ask you, for instance, you know, when I go to when I go to the store these days, even it's so hard to find good wine in a grocery store, and even a high end grocery store, like mm-hmm. even like a the Whole Foods or something like that, or yeah. whatever. It's like it's yeah. thousands of bottles of Chardonnay. But there's great, but there's great places to go to, and you can in fact find wine that is cheaper than where you what you would find in the supermarket, um, being made by great producers, doing it in smaller quantities and at times naturally. Good wine shop to go to is Helen's Wine Shop inside of John and Vinny's in Los Angeles. Uh huh. It's highly curated. It's the size of a closet. Yeah. Everything there is great. We're really fortunate to have our wine in there. Very lucky. It's an incredible... I would say, like, 
we're like the most mainstream wine in there. So, and I don't consider ourselves necessarily mainstream, but yeah. we are from Napa Valley. So it's people sort of at times probably frown at that. Um, they want to be from cool areas like, you know, I don't know, like Jura or, you know, from Sicily, but Mount Etna, um, pardon well, me. So, I'm... so there's a lot of great wines that are, that are, um, made for under $30 sure. and there it exists. You this just is the problem. To... If I go to the grocery store, I'm not going to buy a $35 or a $40 bottle of wine that I don't know what it tastes like. What, you know what, what is, mean? what sort of price point would you pay for a bottle of wine? Well, what I generally look for is something that's in the like 15 to $25 range. You know, when yeah, I go to like great. Silver Lake wine and these places, you know, and I ask them what, what, this is what I like. I like a dry Riesling. Yeah. I like something that's, like you say, it has a lot of acid or is very bright. Yeah. Goes well with like fish or something like that that's not sweet. And so I ask for these kind of things, but I'm not going to go to Whole Foods and buy something that's $40 and it's all Chardonnay anyways. Yeah. But what I'm, and, and obviously in LA, we, we're lucky and we can find stuff like that. And if you're obviously, if you're in Napa, you can find stuff. But like, there's more, more and more though. I'll, I'll say this. So, Initially, when you find good beer everywhere now, and now I feel like it's it's, yeah. it's still hard to find good wine everywhere. Well, I, I I'm going to counter that and say that things are changing. So I'm not saying they're not. I'm saying if I go to the liquor store right now, the wine selection will be terrible. At but a liquor store, there will be store. really good beer. Well, okay. What I'll say is regionally, places like North Carolina and South Carolina now are importing very interesting wines mm-hmm. and. Um, I'm speaking regionally. Um, Whether it's in a liquor store or supermarket, I don't know. But I'm saying regionally, Middle America is now getting cool natural wine producers, you know, cool, funky, weird varietal varietals from strange areas. Like, that's all happening. And those are, you know, at a lower price point. It's neat to see that culture um, proliferating. And and my, you know, I know this because, like, um, our... Our, our, our importer, um, which you signed on, uh, signed on with, um, uh, at Vintage, is is distributing a lot of cool wines. It's just interesting to see, like, Middle America is now getting exposure to these wines, which are super out there, punk rock, and, you know, it's kind of cool. Like, I was watching the show, um, Fuck That's Delicious, mm-hmm. like, a year ago, and there's a super crazy um, natural wine producer from, from Italy, Frank Cornelison. And, like, they showcase that wine on that show. And right. a kid that's in middle America has exposure to that wine now. Or not a kid. I say a kid. A kid is a 20-year-old for me these days. Or 22-year-old. Sure. Sure. But, um, but anyways, it's just cool. So I think, to your point, it is developing. It is changing. There will be a time where every town will have a cool little wine shop, just like a cool little record store right. that we had growing up. Um, well, you we know. can probably take over the space. But, the, but the that's store a, was yeah, in. and like Rockaway Records in Glendale. Sure, it's right next to Silver Lake Wine. It's right next to Silver Lake Wine. Right. Silver Lake Wine is now the Rockaway Records of twenty the 2010s, 2010s. I completely agree with you because it. for every time. And, and, and the Randy is just like that record store <laughs> owner who like basically you have to earn the right to buy a bottle from him. Right. So, if I anyways. have $20 in my pocket, I'm buying wine and not records these days. I'll, I'll say that much. And it used to be different. You know, I used to buy a six-pack of Budweiser and as many records as I could get. But it's, it's changed. But I think that wine is maybe the next. It's it definitely, I agree with you in that, in that direction because t- 10 years ago, I don't even know if people my age and younger even thought about wine as much as, as we do now. You no, know, with I, think it's, I think because it's, 
it's tangible, it's unique. Um, unique, what I mean by unique, that is, um, um, well, you can't digitize it. I think right. like it's, it's sort of, it, it comes and goes. It's also strange that with a record, you can listen to it over and over again. Well, I like, if you really objectify what, what it is, like the act of drinking wine, you're essentially taking uh, grape, you know, fermented grape juice and turning it into piss. Mm-hmm. Like if you really get elementally, if you get down to it. So still for me, like, unfortunately, it doesn't have the, the weight and resonance of a record that in like, you know, the act of putting on a record. But it's the closest thing I think I can get to it in, you know, culturally. And when you pair it with a good wine or with a good food, you know, with a, you know, decent meal, it becomes a memory. And I think that it is, I mean, it's memory based more so. Yeah. So anyways, it's not as cool as a record. It won't ever be. I don't know. We're getting, have you, the bands lately, I know. (laughs) I've had better wine than music lately. I'll say that much. But Very uh, disposable these days. We, you know, we we kind of can go on forever with this, but I wanted to talk to you though. Like you guys, kind of, you guys weathered the fires up there pretty yeah. well. And I, I think Jess told me actually that you maybe you guys uh, stored a lot of people's wine during that yeah. time. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll to do so. I'll, I'll bring up a pretty interesting story. Um, that happened later as the fires happened. You know, I I got word that my folks' place was on fire. And so I sort of I rushed out there. I thought they were in, in their home. So rushed out there and sort of broke through a police bar- barricade. And mind you, I'm, you know, I'm not 22 anymore, like we were talking earlier, a naughty kid. I'm 40, you know, I have a, I have a six-year-old daughter and I'm, you know, 40, 41, and, you know, I have responsibilities. I'm I also an employer and, there, you know, I have upwards of 25 people, you know, employed and I was arrested during the fires when I broke through the police barricade trying to get to my folks. Turns out they weren't even there, mm-hmm. thankfully, but their place was on fire. Um, the house. Yeah, the house was on fire. And, um, you know, I had gotten there um, the day before when I just started catching on fire and started to use the trash can and filled it up with water to sort of wet the area. When I heard, and it was still on fire when I left, when I heard that they were perhaps in there still and I hadn't slept... Because, you know, of course, the world was on fire as far as we were concerned. Mm-hmm. I sort of wasn't in the right mind and blasted through a police barricade. To, and so I was charged with two felonies. Um, and thankfully, since then, I, I'm, I've um, those charges have been um, dropped. It cost me $20,000, um, uh, you know, in attorney fees. But it's also, you know, it's a different town up there. It's very, you know, we were talking about Bay Boys and localization. There's definitely a, a local vibe there that I don't always feel comfortable in. Yeah. Um, so um, there's also like a Sonoma Napa rivalry as well. No, it's 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 there. I, I was called out for using the term napathy in in the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm sure that didn't help any because I I do believe a lot of times people are just sort of insulated up there and it's they're you know they don't really care much. A lot of people do. A lot of young people do. But I'm saying this sort of. Um, if you will, chateau owners out up there. They're sort of like, you know, it's like almost a retirement community and there's so much work to do still. There's so much work to do turning that place organic. You know, there's a real opportunity to be the first uh, wine growing community that goes organic. Mm-hmm. A lot of young people want to do it. It takes more labor, perhaps a bit more cost, perhaps a bit more elbow grease, but 
you know, there's a real opportunity to do something there. Fortunately, a lot of the second generations are, are coming up and, you know, instilling those practices in those vineyards. Boy, would that be great. Um, but there's the old guard and the old guard exists there and there they can be, you know, you know, idle, idle time does the devil's work. You know, there's not much excitement in Napa Valley. So, you know, when something does happen, the cops get pretty fucking excited, mm-hmm. especially the sheriff. So, sorry. <laughs> I, I have a, a axe to grind, obviously, well, <laughs> months later. But no, it was the end of the world, and it was, it was you know... You guys made it Climate, climate, climate change. Get climate, to, climate change is real. Where do you real. see this happening? Climate change is know? real. It was, it was a real wake-up call that we have to do something different. And Am I speaking too loud into the microphone? No, 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 okay. it's fine. I can adjust it later. It doesn't okay. matter. I'm okay. just curious. Climate like, change is real, and they cause, you know... It, well, what was ultimately, and I'm... You know, it's not definitive, but... Um, PG&E, which is an evil corporation, um, sparked the fire out there. And, and there's not a definitive proof of that, but, uh, you know, the, the theory is that um, a power line came down, uh, on, you know, on a hot day, hot, windy hot day. It was like 20, 20 mile per hour winds, 30 mile per hour winds. And you combine that with 100 degree weather, and there's going to be a fire. And, um, you know, PG&E, um, they're not the most uh, attentive company. You call them, they come out maybe you know a month later to do the work. So it's kind of like calling Time Warner Cable or one of these big sure. corporations. It's a, monopoly. it's a monopoly. If you want power and gas, you have to call PG&E. Yeah. So uh, anyways, that unto itself, the real issue being climate change, um, you know, it's, you really learn, if, if I was working at Capitol Records still, Yes, climate change would be on my mind, but the immediacy of it, the proof of it wouldn't exist. Sure. Like living in Los Angeles, yeah, we see some brush fires here and there, but we don't see our entire world on fire. The skies were auburn. It looked like a scene out of the um, Blade Runner sequel. Everything in the Vegas scene, you know, it was like everything was auburn. Um, we had to wear gas masks in the office. Like it was, it was real. Um, driving out to San Francisco was also auburn. That's how deep the smoke was. And everyone, and the, and the, the smoke would, the fires would reflect onto the smoke. So it would create this auburn bubble. And I still have nightmares from it. It's awful, awful experience, but that's what climate change is. Right. Um, and that's very scary. Forget about, um, forget about your grapes. This is an existential threat of like your entire place going up. And we're seeing more and more of that now. And so we're, I guess we're doing our best to engineer against it in the, in the vineyard, you know, higher trellising, um, uh, row orientation, you know, not going north, north, south, exposure to the sun, um, uh, a more abundant uh, canopy to guard from the, um, the um, pervasive sun, um, you know, uh, a more balanced crop. So, you know, you, we don't drop a lot of fruit so we can spread out where the sugars go. All those things, because if at the end of the day, if your if your sugars go up to like, you know, thirty thirty one bricks to reach phenolic maturity, then you're making port. So, um, and you don't want to do that. So, yeah, there's sort of um, it's an engineering issue. It's not it's not we're at a point where we have to adapt to what's happening in climate change. And beyond that, obviously, it's an existential threat. So, I think the grapes are the least of our worries. Right. Well, I think that I think that pretty much sums it up. And I, I mean, wine. Sorry to end on that note. <laughs> no, I think it's good. It's good because the wine is 
you know, it's kind of a new obsession for me with um, a lot of other weird things, but uh, it's been more and more important to me. I was always into food. I was always into whatever, guitars, music, knives, whatever. But, you know, the wine thing kind of fell in line with the food thing, and, and I'd like to see it become more accepted and more normal to have good wine when you're eating good food. And, you know, the more you go to Europe and you get used to, like, it being served at every meal and and people being very proud of their local products and things like that, and I just like to see it become more acceptable in the U.S., you know. On that subject, and the varietal of Merlot and Cabernet Franc, or more specifically Merlot, you know that movie Sideways yeah. came out, and sure. it was like, fuck Merlot. Fucked up the Merlot. <laughs> and I'm sure everyone knows this, but if they don't, they should know this, that when Miles was in the um, burger joint, Drinking his Cheval Blanc in a uh, styrofoam cup uh-huh. with his burger. Cheval Blanc is Merlot and, and also Cabernet Franc. So, you know, I, I think that wasn't picked up. And maybe Alexander Payne could have added a footnote in the credits or something like that to say, by the way, this was actually Merlot base. But it did destroy the fucking industry for a long time. So, you know, these these there are consequences to... <laughs> To these things, Hollywood, like, don't talk shit about Merlot ever again. Yeah, it's like now it's like fuck sideways. Everyone sort of laughs at that movie, and you know, Miles, Jessica, and I know a lot of Miles in our in our world, right? Too many, I'm a sure. A lot of lot of lot of Aners out there. I'm, what's the other guy's name in the movie? Not Miles. What's the other guy's oh, name? Oh, I forget. Because I I know a yeah. lot of that guy. Which is just like... But when, that guy's awesome. When you fucking his spooner when, is a spooner shirt or when whatever. You, when you are at the lowest point of your life and your relationship is, is just double down and have sex with like a fat girl. <laughs> I think we can end cool. on that probably. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thank you.